Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. play have to do with the Bible in the Joshua chapter 7, but what we find is another example of vict- or defeat being snatched from the jaws of victory. We find the nation of Israel is caught up in the euphoria of a stunning victory. You go back and read what happened in Joshua chapter 6, and, and the walls came down, Israel was able to go in, every man was able to go in, they were able to secure the victory without, uh, the in- indication is almost with that's the sense of casualty. Nobody even, there was no Israelite casualties involved in the conquest of Jericho. And so they're looking at their map and they're deciding where to go next. And there's this little bitty garrison of, of Ai. It's like, it's like conquering Chattanooga and then looking and saying, let's go take Flintstone. Right? I mean, I mean that's, that's where it's at on the map. It's not much. It's a little bitty wide spot in the road, but it had to be taken. It wasn't much. Even, in fact, it didn't even require the whole army to capture this little city of Ai. However, the problem we see shows up very quickly here and reminds us of some really important spiritual truths in this stunning defeat in Joshua chapter 7. If you've got your Bible, hopefully you found Joshua chapter 7 by now. We'll read starting in verse 1. If you're able, would you stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Word from Joshua chapter 7 beginning in verse 1. It's never good when a chapter begins with but. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, uh, went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have, be- they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Father, I thank you for 
your words. I thank you for the challenge contained in Joshua chapter 7. I pray, Father, that we would recognize that you take holiness seriously, but I thank you for the provision for that we have in Jesus. God, help us be faithful today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. I won't lie, when I was realized I was going to preach Joshua, I couldn't wait to use the sermon title, My Aching, Breaking Heart. Uh, it really has nothing to do with the text. I just couldn't wait to use it, and I chose, I, I just did it. And so, uh, so forgive me for that little bit of uh, indulgence there, but I, I couldn't. And if the song's stuck in your head, you can thank Billy Ray Cyrus the rest of the day. Uh, you know, one of Satan's great distortions is that that's a good song. No, actually, it's, I'm going to, one of Satan's great distortions is that we have bought into this whole thing, hook, line, and sinker, is that the individual is the only thing that matters. You think about so many of the great cultural battles that exist today. They exist because of the cult of the individual. This is the basis of all this talk about sexual deviancy and gender confusion. It all comes down to the cult of the individual. At the same time, we're dealing with that. We live in this world today where, where we want to group everybody and everything into predefined groups. And if you fall into one of those groups, then we can make broad assumptions about you. You're part of a, uh, you're part of a Southern Baptist church in Georgia, and so as a result of that, that group, we can make some, some assumptions about you. And we all know that that's not the case. We can't make those assumptions about us just because we fall into a group. This idea of grouping everybody together is really one of those foundational elements of what you've heard today as critical race theory and any kind of critical theory is the idea that if you're part of a group that you're like everybody else in the group that, and therefore you're guilty of the sins of everybody else in the group. What's interesting is there really is a conflict brewing today between the advocates of the self and the, 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 the sexual revolution and the proponents of things like critical race theory. The problem is they just haven't figured out that they don't get along with each other. Because what they'd really rather do is get rid of conservative, biblical worldviews. When we open our Bibles, what we find is that there is a really a, a significant contrast between a biblical view of the world and all of these alternative ideas. A biblical view of the world says that individuals do matter. But individuals function within the framework that's designed by the creator. You, are, you matter as a person, but you exist as, as a creation. You exist as someone who functions inside an order in which God has established. If you don't believe me, try to defy gravity right now. I dare you. No one in here is going to be able, you guys in the balcony, feel free, defy gravity. Show us what that looks like today. If you're right there on the front row, you might want to move. We all function within a framework that is designed by the Creator, and we really don't work well when we try to defy that framework. We understand individuals don't have the ability to suspend created order to pursue their own confused view of the world. It just doesn't work that way. Individuals are, are very much prone to sinful expressions of pride and self-importance. And individuals tend to idolize the self and distract from the creator. That's what the world, that's what the biblical view of the world teaches us. But at the same time, we recognize the importance of a person. The biblical view of the world also says that community matters. That, that we aren't created to live in isolation. There's no room for hermits in God's kingdom. God has built us and designed us for community. 
The very first thing God looked at in all of the good creation that he had made, he looked at everything that he said was good, and he said what? It is not good for what? For man to be alone. And so God, from the very beginning, has created us to live in community. At the same time, though, we live in that community, we recognize that the community is capable of gross sin as well. Because communities are made up by their very virtue, their very nature of sinful individuals. There's always been questions about how the church in Germany could allow the Holocaust to go on. And the reason the Holocaust could go on is because in that group it was made up of sinful people who were distracted by things that were not found in God's word. And because of our tendency to idolize the self today... There is a rejection of the idea that morals and truth are fixed. Imagine if you were to do an experiment. Take a camera out on the street and ask and interview people and ask them the following question. Ask if they agree or disagree with this statement. If I don't bother you or offend you, then I can do whatever I want. How many people would agree with that today? Not, not in here, not in church on Sunday morning, but just, just go out to the bridge in Chattanooga on a, on a Saturday afternoon and stop people at the walking bridge and say, do you agree or disagree? If I don't do anything that hurts you or offends you, then I can do whatever I want. You know, the reality is, likelihood is very high that you would probably find that most people agree with that statement. Most people would agree with the idea that as long as I don't bother you or offend you, then I can do whatever I want. But the fact of the matter is, is that such a statement does not stand up very well under biblical scrutiny. And what happens here in Israel certainly shows us that that doesn't pass the test. Because the biblical worldview says that it's not just actions that matter. It's not just our steps. It's not just what we do with our hands. It's not just the words that we speak. The Bible teaches us that we are even held responsible for our thoughts. And your thoughts can be all over the place, and no one in the world ever has to know what your thoughts are. You can have all kinds of sinful thoughts and sinful motives, and you could be a saint on the outside. But the Bible teaches us that we are accountable even for our thoughts problem is we see this idea creeping into the church as well. We find fewer and fewer Christians seeking accountability in their Christian life. I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was discussing the rise of the Duns. And, uh, and if your last name is Dunn in the room today, just know this is, a different, this is a different phrasing. So I'm not picking on anybody with that last name today. We know what the nuns are. And that's not nuns like Catholic nuns. That's nuns spelled the same way as Duns are. The nuns are, are those who, who have no affiliation. They have no, no religious connection. They're, they're not agnostic. They're not atheists. They're more just, they don't care. They're, they're unconcerned. And, and uh, demographers are telling us that the largest group of religious or the fastest growing religious affiliation in our country are those who have no religious affiliation. And that should be concerning to us when we understand that we live in the buckle of the Bible belt, but the buckle is getting undone if you haven't noticed. But the Duns are those who used to go to church, but who no longer go to church. And we all can think of names really easily of those who fall into this category. And again, this little thing called COVID that started almost three years ago. 
The pandemic has exacerbated this problem and accelerated this problem in the church, and every church has experienced this. People who haven't rejected faith, but they have rejected community. The problem we have today is that you can literally sit home and you can listen to the best preachers in the world. You can sit in on the church with with the, the biggest budget. You can sit in on the church with the best musicians. You can sit in on the church with the, the most prolific preacher who's written the most books and who is, who is famous worldwide. You can do that today from the comfort of your very own living room. But you lack the community that comes with the body of Christ. There is a dangerous, sinful attitude reflected in the Duns that reflects the prevailing idea that all that really matters is the individual. A biblical view of the world recognizes the importance of the individual, but it acknowledges that individuals are made for community. We do not discount the individual. Jesus died not to save the group, but to save sinners. Jesus died to save you and to save you and to save you and to save you and to save me. Jesus died to save individuals. He didn't just wholesale save a group. He didn't say all the, all the, you know, all the white Americans are going to be saved. He didn't say all of, all of those who make over a certain amount of money are going to be saved. He didn't die to save a group. He died to save individual sinners. Individual sinners have to respond to faith in Jesus. Your parents' faith can't save you. You have to respond to the offer of salvation given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ as an individual. The Holy Spirit doesn't gift the church with gifts. The Holy Spirit gifts us as individuals to serve. The church is made up of those individuals, but those individuals are uniquely gifted. That's what makes the church such an incredible blessing is that everybody in the room who's a Christian, who's a part of the church, is supposed to be gifted by the Holy Spirit with ways to enhance and enforce the church's ministry. That's why the 80-20 rule doesn't work in church where, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. The, the rule in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be 100-100, where 100% of the people do 100% of the work. That's how it's intended to function. At the same time, individuals are created to exist in community. When God created things, he established two organizations that individual human beings are affiliated with. The first organization is the family. It was established in Genesis chapter 2. It's not good for man to be alone, so God created the helpmate and established the family. There, the Lord says, it's not good to be isolated. It's not good to be alone. But the second organization that God put together is the community of faith. It's first described through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and later through the church, which is established in Acts chapter 2. This means that we as individuals make up a part, we're we're individual pieces of a very, very large puzzle. And that also means that whether you like it or not, you impact us. That's what scripture teaches. And that's what AI has to teach us today. Joshua chapter seven gives us a stunning picture of just how much one man's individual sin pattern can impact the entire community. I only read the first part of the story. What happens? AI, I've said, is this little town, they try to go take it with just a couple of thousand folks, but they're routed. 
And again, we look at the casualty count, we say, well, that's not much. They only lost, what, 36 people? In the grand scheme of things, that's not, a, that's not a terrible battle, but if you were counting on going to Ai and winning decisively, you weren't counting on losing anybody. And so Israel looked at those 36 bodies and said, these guys matter. And so they go and they meet this force and they are resisted with this terrifying resistance. And when they come back, we learn the problem. Somebody in Israel thought God was joking. Because what did God say about Jericho? It's all for me. You don't get to take anything. There's no room for individual plunder. It's all devoted for me. And somebody didn't think God was serious. Somebody thought God must have been joking. And here's the thing. I believe God has a sense of humor. Not a day goes by that I don't think, man, you know God's got a sense of humor. But I don't really believe God jokes. Those two things are very different. And I don't believe God jokes when he says, don't do this. I don't believe God jokes when he says, this is mine. I don't believe God jokes when he gives us a command. And when he gave the Israelites this command, he wasn't joking. What happened? Somebody took things. They took things from Jericho. And God specifically said, don't do that. Now here's the thing. What he took didn't hurt anybody. Didn't affect anybody. It wasn't that he went and robbed his neighbor. He took things that belonged to Jericho. And if you didn't read chapter 6 last week, there wasn't anybody in Jericho who was going to miss it. It was all gone. So what he took didn't affect anybody. It didn't hurt anybody in Israel. It didn't cost anybody in Israel anything. It was his own private thing. He took it, brought it back, buried it in the floor of his tent. Nobody would have known any better. But God doesn't joke with his commands. Now, what I find most interesting about the process that unfolds is that God didn't have to go through the process. I mean, you read through what happens here, and, and, and God has Joshua line up the nation. Everybody has to, has to line up. And, and y'all remember, like, I remember in elementary school when the teacher would make the whole class have to do something because there was one joker in the class that was messing around. And so the whole class kind of had to suffer while, while the stuff was sorted out. Well, that's what's going on here except on a massive scale. The whole nation has to line up, and, and God begins this whittling process. And it wasn't that God was in CSI mode trying to figure out who the guilty party is. It's not that he was looking in their eyes to see, well, who's, who's not looking at me when they walk by? God knew who the guilty party was, so he didn't have to go through this process. But I believe that God put Israel through this process to reinforce just how important it was for the community to walk in holiness. And so section by section, the nation was whittled down until the offender was identified. It began with the tribe of Judah. Then this spirit-led CSI investigation landed on the clan of, of Zerah. And what was a clan? A clan was made up of lots of different households, large family groups, and it looks like the clan was made up of the generation containing great-grandparents and everybody after them. But the offending household was led by Zabdi. And his grandson, Achan, ended up being the offending party. And Achan is caught red-handed. He had no choice. The whole nation watched it whittle down to him. He had no choice but to confess his sin. And Joshua, just to confirm it, sends messengers to Achan's home 
and they find those things that were devoted to God. In modern terms, we call this treason. Achan directly rejected the instruction of the commander. He directly rejected the instruction of what the king said to do. We call that treason, and such treason in Israel resulted in only punishment appropriate, which was capital. I read this, and I don't know about you, but I really feel like this could have ended up differently for Achan. I mean, rewind it, and let's think of how this could have gone differently. They're routed by Ai. Achan is looking at the, the disturbed earth in his tent and realized that's what lurking just beneath the surface where nobody else knows about are all those things that belong to Jericho. I really think that if Achan had got down, taken those things out of the earth, went to Joshua and said, I have this. I almost think Achan's outcome would have been differently. He would have cut off that whole search process. He would have cut out that whole filtering process. If he had just taken time to say, I did this, I sinned, here it is, I repent, I think it would have been different. But I don't know about you, but can you imagine Achan as the whole nation is watching this unfold? He's part of a group of 10,000. They'll never find me. I'm part of a group of 500. They'll never find me. I'm part of a group of 10. It looks like they've sniffed it out pretty good. Never stopping to say, it was me, I did it. I'm the one that stole it, here it is. Please forgive me. Never happens that way. Instead, Achan waits till the very end. He doesn't own his error. He drags the nation through this ordeal every painful step of the way. And what we can understand from this is Achan represents a particular kind of spiritual rot that was there in the nation, and God knew just how serious it was. This morning, I want to consider the two main characters in this story and look at particularly how they contrast with one another. Joshua and Achan, because both those men represent two distinct views of the world. One view represented by Achan is concerned only with self. The other view recognizes self and part of a larger context. To frame this, I want to look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. The apostle Paul wrote this. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Achan represents the selfish man. He represents the selfish man in the story, the selfish character in the story. And though his life is marked by this confession of sin when he is finally outed, the damage is already done. And from what we can tell, his confession is not because he felt bad for what he did, but because he got caught. Paul describes this heart attitude in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. When we are sorry because we got caught, it is very different than we are sorry because we hate our sin. Sometimes our kids feel bad because they got caught, but if they never got caught, you know good and well they would have continued doing that which they've been doing. 
much like a dog does. A dog may show remorse when he's done something inappropriate, but it's not because that dog has any guilt because of his sin. He feels bad because he rejects the punishment that's coming. He feels bad that he got caught. Joshua's words here on a couple of different occasions have laid out the standards of behavior in the conquest of Jericho. Everything is either destroyed or devoted. There was to be no individual plunder. It was really that simple. Achan had a simple choice. Do I do what they say or not? Do I do what God de declares or do I do what I want to do? Achan wasn't thinking about godliness Achan wasn't thinking about godliness. Selfish men aren't driven by godliness and they aren't inclined to pursue righteousness. What does Paul teach us though? He teaches us that the selfish man's life is driven by impulses. Achan, though fully aware of God's expectations, he is not driven by righteousness. He's not driven by pride for his country. He's not driven by a love for God. He is driven by one thing and one thing only. He is driven by his greed. He saw the value of what was before him, and he had no option but to put it in his pocket and take it home with him. His impulse was not to devote it to God. His impulse was to take it and hide it. When Paul says that their God is in their stomach, this is what he is saying. They are not driven by anything but a lust for more of what they find appealing. For some men, it may be pornography. We call that lust. For others, it may be food. We call that gluttony. For others, it may be power. We call that pride. For some, it may be the, the addiction of a controlling substance, and we call that idolatry. For some, it may be financial success. We call that greed. You get the picture. This is what it means to be driven by our impulses. We understand that the selfish man may not even recognize the significance of his negative impact. The selfish man may not even recognize the cost of his own lifestyle on his own family. Listen, parents influence their children. Parents influence their children. Moms and dads, you are the greatest impact in the life of your children. You are the greatest impact to the life of your children. Men, you ought to come to M46 on Saturday morning because that's one of the driving things about M46 is the power of a dad in the life of his kids. You are one of the biggest figures in the life of your children. And listen to me, your children will often adopt your gods, whatever those may be. For Achan, his influence over his family was irreversible, and they were judged as a consequence. Because here's the thing. I believe Aiken's family knew exactly what he was doing. How do I know? Because they lived in tents. And you don't come home with spoil from the battle, get your shovel out, and dig a hole in the middle of the floor of the tent, bury all of the things you took from battle, cover it back up, and mama not notice. Tell me I'm wrong. Mama gonna notice. Honey, what are you doing? Oh, I, I'm burying the... Uh, I'm burying all the silver and gold I just took from the battle. Oh, good. Or the stuff God said don't take. Man, what would have happened if, if you brought something home 
and your wife found out you weren't supposed to have it, and you're trying to hide it in the living room floor, you getting a new tent tonight, son. She's throwing you out unless she likes what you brought home. If she likes what you brought home, you get to sleep snuggled up tight tonight. I believe the family knew what Achan was doing. I believe the children knew what Achan was doing. I believe that everybody knew what Achan was doing because you can't hide it. Which just reminds us of the community aspect of the Bible. Finally, the selfish man's end is often tragic. It's no surprise what happens to Achan. The carnal, selfish man often finds a similar ending to his life. I can't imagine how many funerals are conducted every day where no one has a good word to say about the man who lay in the casket. What if at the funeral the pastor could only, what if at your funeral the pastor could only preach from Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19? Those are the words that would have been spoken over Achan's body. But there's a different character in the story, the selfless man. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Joshua represents this selfless man. In Joshua chapter 7, he has the one who has the spiritual discernment to recognize that there has been a fatal error in the nation. He has the recogn- he's the one who has the recognition which leads him to his knees to intercede on the behalf of his community. Achan's busy hiding, Joshua's busy praying. Achan's busy covering up his sin. Joshua's busy trying to expose it. It's two very different approaches. And Joshua answers the call to lead the community through a very painful process of finding the sin in the camp. Because the selfless man is driven by godliness. There are lots of Achans in the Bible, men who are driven by self. But there are also those who pursue godliness and righteousness, and Joshua is one of those. Joshua is one who chooses to do what's right because he wants to honor God in his life. You ask around, and these people make tough choices, not because they're driven by impulse, but because they're driven by righteousness. The selfless man like Joshua is compelled by resolute dependence on the word of God. They're able to do this because they recognize that there is a standard. Joshua knew what God had said to do. He was the one who communicated it to the people. And Joshua, because he was standing on the word of God, he had no problem leading from from that position of strength. Godly men and women can lead their families because they understand that life is framed by the word of God, not beyond it. Godly men and women have a standard, and they're not willing to budge. It's like that old country song, you got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. I'd much rather know that I'm standing on the resolute promises of the Word of God. The selfless man seeks to lead others in the community and in his family to follow Christ. I love that Joshua gives Achan a chance to speak. It would have been real easy when Achan finally showed his face to go ahead and get the squad together with the rocks 
to, to, to express the anger of, of what, had, what had unfolded. Because Achan didn't stand a chance once he was picked in the divine trial, but Joshua gave an opportunity to him to at least go out and at least in his exit to give glory to God. Paul said the Philippians should imitate him as he imitated Jesus. If you want to be a selfless person, then lead others to follow the most selfless person to ever step foot on this planet, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no denying the fact as we enter into an election season, I guess we've been in an election season, as we enter into voting time, our communities would be much better off if they were led by people who practice selflessness rather than selfishness. There's also no denying the fact that our churches would be better off if we as God's people lived in a position of selflessness rather than selfishness. We also know that our families would be better off if moms and dads lived out a, a, a passion for selflessness rather than selfishness. But that's not really the way of the world today, is it? Everything around us is screaming at us that we should strive to be everything that God doesn't want us to be. The world today would have looked at Achan and said, he did a good job. Why? Because he looked out for himself. Took care of number one. He did it my way, as Frank Sinatra sang. The world would say, good job, Achan. Way to take care of, of, of yourself. Way to stick it to the man. But that wasn't God's way. And God looks at Achan and says, why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you trust me? When we find ourselves living in that position of selfishness, I think God looks at us in the same way and says, why don't you trust me? Why don't you believe me? When we look to Jesus, you're hard-pressed to find anything selfish about Jesus, aren't you? You look to Jesus and you see things like my favorite, one of my favorite verses, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We look to Jesus and he sets this stunning example for us of serving each other and caring for each other and placing other people's needs ahead of our own. He gives us a stunning picture of selfless service, not selfish ambition which begs that question in our own lives. Are you today striving to lead others to godliness, striving to point others to Jesus Christ, or responding simply to your own impulses? Are you making your church a better place and a stronger place by your actions and by your character? Are you leading your family toward Jesus or away from him? Because I think that's the reality for all of us. We're either pointing others toward Jesus or distracting them from Jesus. When Achan brought that loot into his home, he knew full well that he was defying God's command, and he knew that doing so carried great risk. He had every opportunity to walk away from his decisions, but instead he rode that train to the end of the track. Please, today, don't be like Achan. Follow Jesus. Purge the idols, purge whatever is in our lives that defies Jesus, and follow Christ. Would you pray with me, please?
Father, I thank you for words like Joshua chapter 7 that challenge us, that provoke us, that call us to account. Father, we understand and recognize that we are a sinful people and we are prone to sin, but there is grace in Jesus and there is forgiveness that's found in Christ. And so, Father, as we walk in your forgiveness, may we be men and women who lead people to Jesus and not distract them from Jesus. May we be people who, who strive to walk in the righteousness of Jesus and not who follow our own pathway and do things our way. We live within the confines of our creator. And within those boundaries, you have given us joy and abundance and delight, but we only find it truly if we find it in you. We are men and women individually made in your image, individually gifted for service, created for community. May we be faithful to those ends. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.